This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of economics, politics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. On today's episode, Dr. Robert Grayboy, Senior Research Fellow here at Mercatus, talks to Dr. Pradeep Shankar. Dr. Shankar is a practicing radiologist in Columbus, Ohio. He's also a pundit who contributes regularly to the National Review, Ricochet, and the American Spectator. In addition, he's founder and CEO of the Neo Avatara Foundation, which provides educational scholarships for needy children. Dr. Shankar got his BS at the University of Michigan, his MS in basic medical science and immunology at Wayne State University of Medicine, and his MD at the Saba University School of Medicine in the Netherlands Antilles. In this episode, Grayboys and Shankar discuss the COVID-19 vaccination rollout, what we got right and wrong at the start of the pandemic, and much more. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation, has been slightly edited for clarity. This is Bob Grayboys with a brief note about this podcast. When we recorded this conversation on March 11th, my guest, Pradeep Shankar, commented that with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic, India was doing better than many Western countries. By the end of April, however, that situation had changed drastically as India was being ravaged by the virus. I asked Pradeep whether he would like us to edit out his comments on India, and his unabashed response was, no, it was my opinion at the time. In fact, elsewhere in the podcast, Pradeep says he does not delete his erroneous forecasts. He prefers to leave his past statements, right and wrong, out there on the web for all to see. One of the things I've enjoyed most about Pradeep's coverage of the pandemic over the past year is his intellectual honesty and willingness to highlight where his predictions have not been borne out. Such honesty is all too rare these days. And now, on to our podcast. Glad to have you with us today, Pradeep. Been wanting to do this yeah. for quite a while. Ah, thanks for having me. I'm kind of excited about it. Yeah, yeah, I am too. As Twitter has descended into kind of an insane asylum of, of uh, angry political people, I have often been tempted to delete my account. <laughs> there are a few reasons I don't, and one of them really is your your stream. You have been, I have found, one of the most informative people out there on the on the COVID crisis, both on the end of observations on policy and the way things are going, but, but especially your sort of massive amount of uh, statistics that you've been posted. So I think you've done a real service to humanity in, in posting those. And uh, my thanks, and I know a lot of other people out there make the same quote. And I will say that though you are a self-described conservative slash libertarian, I'm always impressed. You've aimed your rhetoric and your facts at both sides of the aisle. And one of the things I like best about reading your writing is its unpredictability. When I set out to read one of your pieces, I don't know in advance what you're going to say. And that's what I value most in a commentator. And that's what I aspire to do in my own writing. So with that, let's get started on the uh, conversation. So throughout this pandemic, as I said, you've posted vast amounts of international, national, and state-by-state data, and you've provided running commentary. What are a couple of the the most interesting or surprising findings to emerge from the the data over the past year? First, I want to thank you for your compliments. That that was really kind of you. Twitter, to me, has been a lot of fun all along, as long as you can ignore the hate. And I think the COVID crisis, because we were all locked down for so long, it was a very useful method for 
us to interact with other medical professionals on a, on a day-by-day basis, trading uh, information. A lot of these things couldn't be published immediately, so a lot of them were just anecdotal. But, you know, we, we were able to spread information and data around very quickly. And for that, Twitter was great. Yeah, it's absolutely. That's that's at Twitter's strength, obviously. And I think the other nice thing is, for me personally, I can now go, I don't delete almost any tweets. So I can now go back a year ago and see the things I got right and wrong. You know, I think most of the more respectable, you know, researchers and stuff will do this. They're pretty honest about, yeah, I screwed up here, I screwed up there. A few weeks ago, I went back and went and looked at some of my old tweets, and I, I tweeted out, well, look at how much I screwed up here and how much I screwed up there. But that's the only way I think we can really improve on our response for the next time. The next time's going to come eventually, and it gives me a good ability to look back and say oh, kind of what things I did right, what things I did wrong. And I think for a lot of people on Twitter, that's, you know, one of the benefits. I agree. That's, that's, that's another reason I stay on it too. Yeah. I mean, it's just really helpful as long as you're not like picky. Oh, I'm embarrassed that I said this. Well, I've said a lot of dumb things just like everybody else says, and then come back and said, that's not right. I, I do think as for the data, to me, the most surprising thing was when we go back and look a year ago is how many assumptions we made that were just completely wrong. I mean, I'm talking about the smartest of smart people from uh, Anthony Fauci, who I've met and I respect, all the way on down to everybody else. And we all made huge mistakes. We knew that early on the elderly were susceptible because of uh, what was happening in places like Italy. Unfortunately, we didn't have data about China, but once Italy and the UK started getting hit, we knew that the elderly were especially susceptible. So that one fact kind of was consistent all the way through. But everything else that we looked at and ways we approached things during the pandemic, really so many of them fell by the wayside as we learned more and more about the pandemic. It it goes to the point that we have to be a little more careful about making assertions on something that's completely new that we don't really have a good grasp of. The one other thing I think that, the you know, going back and the data you know, kind of really surprised me is I think most of us expected a lot of these poor countries to have mass devastation. You know, some of the Indian uh, experts out there were talking about millions of dead people on the street. And countries like India actually haven't done too bad. I mean, uh, we can question their data to some extent, but their excess deaths haven't increased as much as any of us expected. So, we expected them to get hit while we expected the West to do better because we have better healthcare systems. But exactly the opposite happened. The, the West got pummeled, even though our healthcare systems were dramatically better and we had the money and you know ability to do all kinds of things. So again, a lot of our assumptions fell by the wayside as time went on. Just as an aside, let me just ask, you're a, a, I've never known this, you're, you're a radiologist. How did you end up doing all this writing for public policy journals and becoming you know, kind of a world-class data expert on public uh, health data? <laughs> well, I was always involved kind of peripherally with political issues. I, I kind of was involved with some public health stuff, but my first love, like 
before I even went to college was education policy. I really loved education policy. My sister and I were very involved in like, you know, setting up mentoring programs for inner city kids and those kind of things. Eventually, I had a charity that was, you know, running for a while, you know, giving scholarships and stuff. So that was my first love in kind of public policy. I was kind of peripherally involved with some of the researchers that talked about the Clinton healthcare plan in 93, 94. So I was a little bit educated on that, but I, I, that wasn't really my love. But then in 2008, then Senator Barack Obama, then Senator Hillary Clinton, both come out with healthcare plans, massive you know overhauls of the healthcare system. And I had a couple of friends that were working for politicians that were asking, well, what do you think? And I, well, I had a lot to say, like I always have, you know, I have a lot to say about everything. And so I ended up starting writing and then they asked me to write a white paper for them. And I ended up writing something like an 80 or 100 page, you know, thing about, you know, well, here's all the data I can find on like the things they're doing. That got sent around a little bit. And then I got asked to, you know, give, you know, kind of updates and things to different people. And so as that, the really the ACA Obamacare event was the one that really kind of propelled me into more public health than um, the other fields I was more interested in before that. Interesting. Well, actually, we share share some of that from the from the early '80s till the early '90s. I did international economics or macroeconomics, and at some point, my wife noted that I didn't seem very interested uh, in it at, at that point. <laughs> Uh, I had right. I had liked the international, but I wasn't doing that anymore. But that I seemed to be always absorbed in healthcare issues, and this was during the right. Clinton, the Clinton debate. And uh, she said, "Well, why don't you do that for a living?" So that uh, that actually is what got me to switch over into healthcare. It was a uh, it was a fascinating time. Yeah, it really was. It's it's funny how these external events change our you know path because we just don't expect it. Yep, and then the lead up to the ACA is what got me to move to Washington and get into the policy world. So that was the other event. Yeah, right. So diving into all the data you've been looking at over the last year, what would you say the data, uh, looking back, tell us about, I don't know, wearing masks, locking down businesses, closing schools, and getting vaccinated? I think, well, let's take one by one. Uh, Wearing masks is one thing that's become very political for kind of silly reasons. I I think the evidence is quite clear that universal usage of masks is going to reduce transmission. Now, how much it reduces transmission for COVID, I, I think that's still debatable. To me, when I look at the data, I think it's a significant but marginal benefit to wear masks. And considering the cost is almost zero. Wearing masks to me seems like a you know easy, simple thing that we should all be doing. I mean, even uh, I, I know there's. We'll talk about the vaccinations, but even once vaccinated, I plan on wearing a mask. Now, I wouldn't force that mandate on other people, but I think there's a lot of benefits to that, and we can talk about that. As far as locking down businesses, I think when we come to when we were talking about last March like almost exactly a year ago when, you know, everything kind of hit the fan and we, you know, we were in really big trouble. New York hospitals were getting flooded. We really needed to lock down. What we saw in New York, the the catastrophic deaths that we saw in March of last year, we would have been seeing all over the country if we had not locked down. 
I mean, and New York has a lot of good hospitals, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of capacity and they were over flooded. You, I can't imagine what the rest of the country would have looked like if we had not locked down. So short term, the lockdowns were necessary and prudent. I think where we get into a problem with the lockdowns was everybody, all the experts were saying, okay, we need to bend the curve. That was the thing that we talked about. And they were talking about, well, we need two to four weeks to, you know, bend the curve and save hospitals. Okay. And then four weeks came and then they're like, well, we need four more weeks. And then four more weeks after that. And the public is pretty reasonable about these things. But after some point, they were looking around. A lot of these people were, you know, missing mortgage payments and, you know, not able to pay rent. And they're looking around and saying, well, you told us four weeks ago, 10 weeks ago, you know. And I think as a short term effort, the lockdowns were smart and prudent. Longer than that, I think it basically backfired because at the, at some point the lockdowns were going to be fought against by the public. The public was not going to be able to sustain a six month, 12 month lockdown. And if you look at even countries like in Europe where, you know, they're kind of a little bit more willing to do those things, even they they've seen pushback on the lockdowns. So there was no way we were going to sustain lockdowns for months and months and months on end. As for school closings, I think that's one of our biggest failures. Even early on, you saw European countries and Asian countries keeping schools open. Uh, you know, France was, you know, except for very limited times was open all the way through. Most of Europe stayed open for most of the year. We shut down everything last March and there's kids that are only going back to in-person schooling this week. The cost of that to kids is something that's going to be immeasurable for years and years. It may take decades for us to understand the full damage uh, we've done to kids on that. Now, some of that was necessary. We Like early on, I said the lockdowns were necessary. I think, yeah, short term, they were necessary. But like when we got to this fall or even now into January and we're still, I mean, as of today, some of the teacher unions are you know still fighting the CDC recommendations. The economic and societal costs to this are going to be with us for the rest of our lives. That's how much of a cost that's going to be. And, 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 probably, and probably some health costs as well in terms oh, of the, yeah. the mental health of the, uh, of the kids. Absolutely. I mean, well, mental health, I, I don't even know how we're going to approach that. I mean, kids that do not have the support systems of wealthier parents, uh, I mean, what have they been doing for a year? We have no idea. And there's upward, I mean, there's a lot of estimates on this, but there's people saying that there's three or four million kids that have just dropped off the face of the earth as far as government is concerned and do not really, we don't have any idea where they are. And they're not, they're not on online learning. They're not, you know, being tracked by anybody. I mean, uh, the damage is going to be incalculable. Then as far as vaccines are concerned, vaccines are, if you had asked me last summer, would we have had vaccines by the end of 2020, I would have laughed at you. Anthony Fauci basically said, there's no way we're going to have, you know, vaccines by 2020. And then here we are in December vaccinating people. It is truly one of the great scientific achievements of modern history, being able to get the vaccines produced safely and then inoculating people. It's a rem- It was a remarkable feat. And there's a lot of people to credit both public and private for that. 
but they should be thanked dramatically. I mean, they've saved tens of thousands of lives by the speed and efficiency of their system. So anybody out there thinking twice about getting vaccinated, please get vaccinated. It, 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 it's going to save lives. Yeah, that's certainly the thing that I got most wrong a year ago. I, I assumed that there was no way that we were going to have a vaccine for two, three years, at least. I, I thought it'd be longer. So I'm I'm delighted to be wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Deborah Burks was the White House coronavirus response coordinator under President Trump. And she said early on in the pandemic that if we did everything right, U.S. deaths which were still going to exceed 200,000. We're now at about 500,000 in the U.S., two and a half million worldwide. Looking back, do you think we really could have kept COVID deaths anywhere near 200,000? Uh, and if so, what were the mistakes that uh, prevented us from doing that? Honestly, I don't really know. Um, this is a game that some of us uh, data nerds on Twitter have been playing for months. Was there a singular moment, uh, a singular decision by Trump or somebody else, a policy change that could have shifted the entire course of the pandemic and saved two, three, four hundred thousand lives? I'm really not sure. I I keep telling people if China was honest in early December. When they knew, they knew at that point that it was probably transmissible. If the WHO had told us earlier, they knew by the end of December of last or 2019 um, that this was coming up. Maybe we could have done anything. By the time the WHO comes out and calls it a global pandemic, um, which is January 24th of 2020, basically. At this point, there was already community spread in New York. You know, could we have halted that spread? Maybe we could have. But if you look at the countries that really succeeded this past year or year and a half, they are countries that closed down their borders, had strict quarantines for anybody that came in and out of the country, and then tested heavily. We did not ever put a strict quarantine on our borders. So we never really had a limit of what new virus was coming in and out. And even early, you know, January and February of 2020, when New York was getting hit badly, um, there were people that were suggesting maybe we should quarantine New York. I mean, which is kind of a crazy thought, but and and there's a lot of constitutional issues with that, but I don't want to get into the legal thing because I'm no lawyer. But if you do that, does that stop the spread? of COVID, because we know for a fact a lot of COVID virus spread from New York to the rest of the country. Um, New York was the gateway. So places like China, who, you know, they could just order Hubei province uh, with a population of 60 or 70 million people closed off, they were able to control it because they, they just closed the borders completely. We had more trouble because, first of all, we, we don't have the constitutional power to easily do that. But we're also, as a free country, we, free travel is one of the things we truly, you know, appreciate. So quarantines were the one thing that might have really stopped this. And our country is just not built for that. And and it's not just our country. You look at Europe, they had the same problem. I think the key things were, a lot of things were out of our control. If we had earlier detection, we would have maybe made some better decisions. If we had you know, ability to quarantine areas with which had high infection rates, we might have been better off. But considering everything, I'm not sure any person in the Oval Office was going to make a dramatic change that would have changed the course of the pandemic. 
You've already mentioned Operation Warp Speed, the the, the rapid uh, deployment of the vaccines. Other than that, can you can you name something that the federal government really got right and maybe something the federal government really got wrong? Let me start with what we did wrong. The biggest mistake early on was not closing the border, like I said. But, you know, we could have closed the foreign border completely and forced quarantines of everybody, which is what countries like Australia and South Korea and Taiwan did. Ironically, this was the one place all year long that Trump's instinct was absolutely right and everybody else was wrong. His instinct was to close the border. And in retrospect, he was right on that one thing. The second thing the federal government failed was with the CDC. The CDC early on, they were ahead of the curve, actually. They were trying to get a easily usable test to test for COVID. Their scientists basically made a mistake. I mean, they, they and, uh, you know, it, it was an honest mistake. It wasn't something that, you know, was easily prevented by any politician or any external thing. It was one of those things in science where you go, oops, and, you know, people died because of it. You know, we uh, it, it was horribly unfortunate. I'm sure the researcher in charge feels horrible, but it's just one of those things in science that sometimes it doesn't work. So we were way behind on testing for several weeks or maybe even months while Europe and others were testing really well. The third thing is, again, I talked about quarantines. We needed more ability to quarantine people early on. We've kind of become resistant to those kind of, you know, acts because we're kind of libertarian. But if we're going to control the pandemic, we we kind of had to do that. Now, I don't think that was a federal power necessarily. Maybe it had to go to states and localities. But that was one thing that we were never able to control the spread. Even if we had had testing from the CDC early on, I'm not sure we could have controlled much. It would have told us more about where the virus was going, where, where we're seeing new infections, those kind of things. But I'm not sure it would have helped us actually control the spread. As far as successes, I mean, we talked about Operation Warp Speed. The Trump administration, to their credit, made it the priority to get the vaccine done as fast as possible. That was their priority over everything else. They didn't worry about red tape. They didn't worry about all these things. They said, get us a vaccine that's safe as soon as you can. And the private companies answered the call. I mean, Moderna and Pfizer and then later on, you know, the others. And you look at where Europe is. And their red tape really has hurt them on the vaccinations. You know, you even compare Europe to the UK. UK had a very similar plan to Trump. They were just like, we're just going to get the vaccine going. Uh, Europe, because of their resistance to streamlining this process, now you're looking at that some of those red tape decisions are costing lives now. So uh, the Trump administration and the UK did, you know, did a really good job streamlining that those efforts. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think I think it's kind of, it, I mean, it, it's one thing I chuckle about. Trump was audacious enough to say last July that we'd have a vaccine by the end of the year. And in retrospect, you think about all the smart people, Fauci, Burks, the current CDC director, the current White House chief of staff, they all got it wrong, but somehow Trump got it right. I mean, it's just one of those things you shake your head at. And I guess for any listeners who aren't familiar with your work, I doubt that you are in the top five favorite writers by either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. (laughs) No, I'm not making any friends of late, yes. (laughs) Right, right. 
but again, that's what I, I enjoy about your writing. You call them as you see them, and uh, and I don't always know which way you're going to call them. Okay, we talked about the federal government. You've also been very vocal on the states. In fact, the data that I looked at most from you through the year was just on a constant basis, you were pouring forth state by state by state by state data and analysis about it. Uh, so let's let's address the same questions. You know, which states look best in hindsight, which look worse, and uh, what policies that they implemented seemed to work and which didn't. Yeah, I, you know, I and I, I have spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of data going all the way back from to last year about, you know, what states were doing and this and that. And now looking back, I think the evaluation of how states did, how governors acted is so, so hard because there are so many variables on how to control the virus and how they were being impacted. There's no question that New York and the Northeast got hit really hard in the first wave and they were just unprepared. And it's hard to blame even Cuomo or Murphy of New Jersey or any of those guys for what they did early on. I actually, um, if you go back and see my comments, uh, early on, I really complimented Cuomo. He he was trying to mobilize the healthcare system to focus on the people that he thought you know, needed to be focused on, which is ICU patients. And he wanted ventilators and he needed uh, PPE to protect his healthcare workers. And I thought he did, he was the voice of, you know, kind of reason from the localities. I think states that acted early did slightly better. Ohio, for example, Governor DeWine was one of the first to close schools. And then, you know, he, he early on, he was one of the ones that like, saw the risk of prison populations, so he tried to close off prisons. And he took a lot of heat for that, being a Republican. But it certainly saved a lot of lives when you look at it, when you compare, say, Ohio to Michigan, who did a lot worse early on because they took a little longer to get get moving. But that being said, all these things, and then if you go look, you know, through March, April, May, a lot of these states kept their lockdowns going, you know, and then in April, May, what you had was Republican governors saying no. Georgia's Kemp, uh, DeSantis in Florida, Abbott in Texas, and they started opening up. And at that time, you again, you go and look at my comments. I was very hard on them. I was like, this is a terrible decision. I hope it doesn't cost lives. In retrospect, it probably didn't cost a lot of lives, which is kind of, you know, again, it went against the conventional wisdom that all of us were saying. Um, you go look at the ways they opened up were mostly outdoor venues. Um, they kept indoor stuff closed for the most part. And then they mandated masks, which, you know, we've already talked about, you know, shows evidence that it, you know, protects from transmission. And then they kind of let people, the rest of the people kind of feel their way and try to use common sense. Now, in hindsight, that method actually wasn't terrible. I mean, maybe there were certain things they should have done that, you know, that would have, uh, you know, helped infections in certain places and, you know, and others. But like for De- like DeSantis, for example, I, I mean, he opened up very early. I was very critical of him early on, but he did do one thing that Cuomo didn't do, which is he focused on nursing homes and elderly and said, we are going to protect these people. Meanwhile, Cuomo, of course, now we know, you know, 
had been sending people that were sick from hospitals to nursing homes and infecting all the nursing homes. Um, that happened in a lot of states. It happened in New York. It happened in New Jersey. It happened in Michigan. So DeSantis was kind of libertarian in a sense for the general population, but on the most susceptible populations, he actually did a pretty good job. So we have these kind of diverging, I mean, mostly it was political, but also philosophically, there were these diverging concepts and how a population or community confronts an unknown threat. It's kind of, you know, it was kind of like a real world test of what, you know, a large state, big states doing large government things versus other states, you know, letting people more decide with guidelines. But even after one year's time, what you see is it's really hard to say, oh, this state did really, really well and this state did poorly. New York did poorly because they got hit early on. Then they had their summer was OK and then they got hit again. California was doing good all year. Newsom was another guy I complimented all, all the way through. And then you get to the fall and Southern California gets hit really bad. Northern California actually still is doing relatively OK. Then you have states that basically have done well all the way through, like uh, Washington. Their their Democratic governor has done a really nice job. But was it luck or was it policy? It's so hard to tell. Even now, one year after the pandemic's gotten going, I, I think it's going to get take years to kind of filter through the data and decide, oh, this policy really made it an effect. This policy didn't. As an economist, I always told my students um, to keep in mind that we still haven't actually figured out what caused the Great Depression. <laughs> right. We're still, we're still debating it. And, uh, or what got us out of the Great Depression, right. for that matter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So I, I expect that careers will be made uh, from start to finish on analyzing the, the data from this thing. Oh, thousands of PhD theses all over the place. Yeah, actually, it's funny. I, I wrote down a quote of yours just because it was optimistic and in hindsight just sounds quaint. You said, quote, this was in April, Trump has managed to maintain decent relationships with a handful of high-profile Democratic governors from Newsom to New York's <laughs> Andrew Cuomo, both of whom uh, have had their disagreements with Trump but also complimented him at times. The president has praised both of them uh, in turn. And I will have to say I wrote something very similar at the time and I viewed it quite optimistically. But in hindsight, that seems um, rather antediluvian. <laughs> You you wrote a lot starting in April. In in fact, that article was you were ta you were writing of the sharp political schism in how liberals and conservatives viewed policy uh, actions. My view is um, that the political schism probably was rather deadly in sort of dividing. You know, we wasted a lot of time and a lot of effort in pointing fingers at R's and D's. Uh, and I, I don't know how much damage was done simply by delays in action or or in, inappropriate actions taken because of the politicization of the pandemic. And so, what do you uh, what do you tease out of the data on that? Yeah, I, I agree with you a lot. Quaint is such a nice word. I I, I would call it in retrospect probably naive. <laughs> I, I, but like you, I was I, I was hoping for. Uh, our leaders to take a uh, to to reach for a higher calling at a moment of national crisis. I mean, that's really what I was hoping. Now, 
I knew who Trump was. I mean, I left the Republican Party because of Trump. So my hope that Trump was going to raise the bar was always kind of, you know, marginal. I mean, at the time, I mean, I'm not a big I was never a big fan of Cuomo, even before the last year. And with Newsom, I was, you know, kind of didn't know him that well. But I was really hoping these guys would find some way to work with Trump. Now, maybe that was always, you know, hopeless because Trump is Trump. You know, it's like, you know, he's always kind of looking for at his own, you know, uh, career more than anything else. But definitely the politicization all across the board damaged the entire response. The inability of the federal government to work cohesively with states, it certainly must have cost lives, I think. Uh, that the onus on that is mostly Trump's. I mean, the federal government just wasn't willing to, you know, coordinate with you know local states, even Republican states. So the lion's share of that responsibility belongs to Trump. That said, uh, governors, I think it really started once these states like Georgia and stuff started opening up, and then these other governors felt like they were being pressured to open up when they didn't really believe in it. And once that happened, then these governors like Cuomo and Newsom saw a political cost to staying locked down. And once that happened, now they're all looking in their own best interest. Okay, oh, well, you know, you guys, you guys are risking lives while I am trying to save lives. I I think that was just incorrect. They should have tried to let each state kind of, you know, guide their way through the storm. Certain states, it made sense to open up. Uh, I mean, states like Florida, in in retrospect, really were okay opening up. You know, other states have not done so well because they just didn't have the, you know, the ability to open up safely. So what we got was, and of course, on top of all this, this was a presidential election year, which compounded, you know, all the hatred and all the anger. And of course, Trump is, you know, stirs the pot on top of everything else. So I guess I I would hope that it, under a different president with different political environment, if we had had this, if we have this problem in the future, we do better. I'm not overly optimistic that is the case. I don't think this was a Trump-centric issue. I think our political divides are really hurting us right now. And in this case, they cost us a lot of lives. Yeah, one of the things that I found most disturbing, and it was the politicization of the public health community itself, of people who were supposed to be scientific and neutral, um, you know, ending up on the the political sides of the issues. Um, Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think most of the people that I respect, let's be honest, most of them tend to lean Democrat you know, in the public health community, most of them I thought did a pretty good job. I think there are certain ones, you know, that got overly political. I think it was more true in the medical community than the quote unquote public health community. There's a lot of doctors I know that definitely lean Democrat that I think their partisan views hurt them when looking at these things more objectively. But I think like you look at people like Fauci and Burks and, you know, now Wilensky, who runs CDC or Redfield, who ran it before her. I think these people were well-meaning. I, I think they honestly were dealing with terrible 
realities on the ground. They were dealing with horrible politics where people were making death threats against them. Amy Acton here in Ohio, she was the head of the Department of Health here. She did an excellent job. She's a Democrat. DeWine's a Republican, but hired her. And she did a really great job. And then she started getting death threats and people with guns sitting on her lawn. And, you know, so these people were facing terrible, terrible repercussions for just trying to save lives and do their job. Definitely, again, the politicization definitely hurt us. I think there were people, I mean... There are people that now attack Deborah Burks for being overly political because she was kind of being more friendly or more positive to Trump. But she was working within a system where Trump was the commander in chief, you know, and I think she was trying to run the gauntlet where maybe she knew certain things weren't right, but she was trying to get Trump on the right page. I don't think people were very sympathetic to her position inside a government where she's been working for presidents, Republican, Democrat for years. If people had given these people a little more leeway, I think it would have been better for everybody. In the years that I was teaching um, medical professionals in graduate school, I had a stock phrase that more than anything else, I wanted them to learn from the class. I wanted them to learn to be skeptical of everything they hear, including the sentence that I am uttering at this very moment. So be, be skeptical of my skepticism too. Right. And and you did some. Uh, you did a really interesting piece uh, sometime during the year in which you uh, you wrote of first of all the need for sympathy and empathy, and then you added the need for humility and described the role of a devil's advocate or, and it was a phrase I had not heard before, the 10th man. Could you elaborate on these? I, I really liked that piece. Yeah. Um, well, first, sympathy and empathy and the humility part, too. Again, just like I was saying with the previous health directors and stuff, there was so little empathy for what was going on with others, what they were dealing with. Everything was about politics. And I, I was like, even with people like Trump and people like Cuomo early on, I was like, they're going to make mistakes. They're human. And they're, this is a horrible situation where nobody knows what the right thing to do is. And every time a mistake was made, people like, oh, well, look at this Republican. He made a terrible mistake. There was no ability to give people enough leeway to say they are trying their best. We have to, you know, allow them to lead. And that right from the beginning, you know, people were starting to root for, oh, this blue state is doing good or this red state is doing good or vice versa. You know, that really, really bothered me. And that's why I talked about sympathy and empathy. But then the humility part is just is another part of that, because we had so many experts, even to this day, so many experts that made horrible, horrible mistakes. And, you know, like Anthony Fauci initially said, oh, we don't need masks. And now you look back and that's just a ludicrous statement. He Was he ill-meaning when he said that? Did he intentionally want? No, of course not. I mean, he was trying to do the best he could. Did he screw it up? Yeah, he screwed it up. I mean, he's human too. And, I, you know, but at the same time, people like Fauci or myself or anybody that's in this business has to say, look, we may be wrong. And this is the best. What we're telling you right now is the best we can do right now. But 
it, the data could change tomorrow. It could change next week or next, you know, early on people forget, you know, we were last March, what were we all talking about? We were talking about ventilators. We were producing tens and thousands of ventilators. General Motors cleared out one of their factories and started building ventilators. We now discovered is we didn't need that many ventilators, not even close, you know. So we spent like a month talking about ventilators as if they were the holy grail of, you know, curing this problem. And it ended up we didn't really need those. There is not one single physician or public health policy person who has not made a mistake, a a significant mistake in claims in the last year. There's nobody, including myself. And I, I I can go through a full list of things that I, I screwed up. That ability to be humble as a quote-unquote expert would have gone a long way to convince the public, oh, you know what, that guy's at least being honest with me. I think the problem with a lot of the public, they feel like these guys are out there and they're saying they're the expert, and but then they get stuff wrong and they don't say that they're wrong. And, you know, that ability to be humble actually gives you more credibility with the general public, I think, in the long run. The devil's advocate. This also kind of leads into the humility thing. I mean, devil's advocate is, you know, it's an obviously a Christian or Catholic concept where, you know, uh, we have to be skeptical about, you know, like what we view as the truth or reality. The 10th man is kind of a interesting kind of offshoot of that from it actually originates in israel if you go back and look what it was is during the yom kippur war they had a many many data points showing that the war was coming and they ignored all of them and they were almost pushed into the sea and so after that they came up with the concept of like a 10th man which was it was not really a rule per se but it was more like a philosophical thing where if and again it's not a rule but the idea is if there's nine people in a room that all have the same response to a question the 10th man has a duty to take the opposite position and again that's a devil's advocate position basically okay well you guys are all saying x but i think it's y and tell me why i'm wrong that about y now in this past year We didn't have very many good devil's advocates. You know, when people said, oh, we don't need masks, where were the the big leaders saying, oh, yeah, we absolutely do need masks. Tell me why we don't need masks. You know, and so anytime somebody stepped out of line from the common narrative this year, they were kind of ostracized. And that's a very poor way to confront science because science is always evolving and you should be able to confront somebody that has a different position and say, well, okay, that's your position, but let me tell you why you're wrong. Telling, saying, oh no, you're an idiot, get out of here, is not a useful scientific process. And so that's why the devil's advocate to me is very important in not just public policy, but scientific policy and you know how we approach these issues. So we've talked about states and the federal government. Uh, we talked a little bit about some other countries. Are there any... Um... Any observations on specific countries? Of course, uh, people talked a lot about Sweden, which was in some sense a big outlier uh, in their policies because they basically didn't shut down. I don't know. They were sort of the um, Florida or Texas of, of Europe. And and now we can look back at the data. There were other countries, France, Italy, UK, that uh, made a lot of news. And of course, China. 
So any observations on any of those countries, you know, again, good or bad points? What is kind of fascinating about Europe is in many ways they have analogs to U.S. states, um, which you just you know alluded to. Um, like Italy and the U.K. got hit in the first wave, very much like New York did. They then improved over the summer and then got hit again. That's exactly what happened in New York. France was kind of in the middle where they got hit a little bit early on and then they kind of have struggled with it later. Um, that, that's true of a lot of the Midwest states, if you look at it. Sweden, like you said, it kind, of, kind of took, they had some boundaries, but they took a more libertarian approach. And, you know, you could call it like Florida, you said. And, you know, so you have all these countries doing a little bit different things. But here again, this is where it's so hard to decide what policies are. When you come after one year, yeah, the UK did worse than most of these countries. Italy did worse than most of these countries. France did slightly better, but not much better. Sweden did about the same as France. So what you have is after a year, I'm not sure which policies helped and which policies didn't. Even when you get to Germany, remember early on last year, Germany was heralded as the European success story. They did great, you know. They missed the first wave for the most part, and then they got hit hard in the second wave. And they look like they're going to get hit now in the third wave. Well, after a year, Germany doesn't look like so much of a success. Uh, I mean, they look just like everybody else. The successes, we talked about this earlier, the successes were, again, countries that were able to lock down, quarantine, and then test. China, because of being a communist state, was able to do that with a 70 million population province, I mean, which is just incredible. But, you know, the smaller countries that succeeded, uh, the New Zealands of the world, Taiwan, South Korea, it was the quarantines that made the difference. They stopped the virus from coming in, and then... They tested, tested, tested. So Europe and the U.S., you know, basically did about the same, I think, when you look at everything. Um, and they failed for similar reasons. You know, China is kind of unique and we don't really have good data from them. Of course, now the ongoing problem is going to be like Brazil, where they've lost all control. Um, their public health system's a mess and their leaders kind of have not promoted masking and distancing enough. So uh, Brazil is going to be the hotspot for a while. Interesting that uh, some of the really good examples that you named happen to be islands or effectively islands. Right. <laughs> right, so, exactly. so Taiwan, New Zealand, Japan uh, all did well. And South Korea is not an island, but it may as well be. They might as Right. I mean, they have a border that's closed. And, and that's exactly right. Again, when they were able to close off and quarantine themselves, those are places that, you know, were, you know, successful. Now you go back and look at Hawaii. Early on, I thought Hawaii might be able to escape. But then... They had enough travel back and forth that they still got hit. And, you know, had they stopped all travel or had a really harsh quarantine the way that Taiwan did, they might have got away with, you know, not much. But again, that the, the mixing of travelers was, you know, that once you did that, you know, you had lost the battle. In October, you wrote about steps we need to take in order to prepare for the next pandemic. So I don't know, what kind of steps would those be? I think 
well, I, I wrote a long piece, uh, also with my wife, who helped me a lot with that piece, about how I think part of it is, first of all, looking honestly at what failures we had. The first failure was an international failure. Um, we can talk about China, but China's a bad actor. And that's, you know, that's who they are. Where was the WHO? Why weren't they more? They knew early on something was wrong. And once they knew something was wrong, they should have been hitting all the alarm bells. But they didn't. Instead, they kept quiet because they didn't want to upset the Chinese. A system where it's going to be that partisan and political is always going to fail. It's always going to fail because nobody wants to be, oh, oh, this is the, the next pandemic started with us. They don't want to be that. So they're not going to be honest about it at all. The WHO's responsibility, first and foremost, should be to, to the science, not to the politics. If they're going to be to the politics, then they're a useless organization. So they failed us, first of all. Then we have the CDC. I talked about their testing mistakes. But I think the other thing they failed in is they relied on the WHO to give them intelligence on what was going on. And honestly, at this point, I think we cannot trust the WHO unless there's massive reforms there. And I don't think there's going to be massive reforms. So in that case, the CDC and maybe some other organizations like some of the European organizations and others need to join together and have some kind of early alert system or intelligence system where they start ringing alarm bells when they see these kind of things. The CDC and others really missed the boat. They they had warning signs early on, and but they were like, well, the WHO is looking into it. I mean, that's pretty much what they looked at. And, and here's the other thing. It was, it's kind of strange. I, 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 and I only know this because of my parents. My parents spend the winters in India usually. So in the winter of 2019, they were in India. And then in November, my mom calls me and says, oh, all these, a lot of these students in India, that they travel to Wuhan to study. But they're all starting to come home. And I said, why are they coming? They said, oh, so, there's some sickness going on. This was in November of 2019. And I was like, I haven't heard anything about it. And then my mom calls me a couple of months later. I think it was early January. And she's saying, India TV is saying that there's thousands of dead in, in China. And I'm like, I haven't heard anything about it. And so there were, if people were looking for a problem, they could have found it. But we weren't, the CDC obviously wasn't even looking. I mean, when news in India is able to f find stories like this, the CDC should be able to. So we can't rely on other people. We have to, yes, we should work with the WHO, but we have to have our own separate intelligence system on these things because they've proven that we can't depend on these uh, foreign ones. I think the last thing is going to be one of the biggest positives out of the COVID thing is these new mRNA vaccines have the potential to basically stop many, many of these pandemics in their tracks. Now that we have a mechanism that we know is safe, that, you know, we can clip an RNA piece that from any virus that we think, you know, is a problem, stick it in a vaccine and start inoculating. As time goes on, we should be able to produce vaccines in weeks, not months, which is just an incredible, you know, thing and the only thing is this is where the public and private need to get together government needs to find a way to have facilities that where we can produce vaccines very these type of vaccines very quickly 
But this is a very costly thing. So, I mean, private companies aren't going to want to have factories just sitting idle for years and years. So we have to have a system where the government and these private companies work together, where we have production facilities ready to go when they're needed. I think those kind of things are, it's going to cost money, but it's very feasible. The chemistry of what they did is just just astounding. I guess the last thing I will ask you is... So this virus, um, its its effects are lessening. We can deal with it. It's 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 not gone. So, sort of two two questions out of it. Do you think this particular virus is just here to stay? That's something we're going to be managing permanently uh, going forth. Secondly, somewhere about a year ago, I published thirty-two conjectures about permanent societal changes that might result from COVID. Can you think of some things you think? are never going to be the same as they were before. So is is COVID-19 going to be around and what has it changed and it will never return? Um, as for COVID-19, I guess nobody really knows, but my guess is that it will, start, it will become endemic. Um, I think every population on the planet will eventually be exposed to it. Because it mutates so much, we may have to get vaccines regularly the way we do with the flu vaccine that that'll take time to see if if we can control the the replication of the virus among humans we might be able to stop it so that we don't see a lot of mutations with the flu vaccine the virus uh, mutates in pigs and uh, other things and that's what complicates you know uh, the new flu species that you know we get affected through uh, different years with covid we might be able to control it but my guess is it will be around in some manner forever. What people kind of forget in 1969, we had the H3N2 flu pandemic. Uh, it was called the Hong Kong flu back then, which now is kind of in, inconvenient. It killed about a million people worldwide at that time. And what people don't realize is we still see that flu every few years. It's a bad flu. It goes and hits older. It's an influenza A virus strain. It goes and hits older people. So that flu has never gone away. That's 1969. My guess is that COVID will be something similar. It hopefully will get it under control. It won't be a major issue because of the vaccines. But it's here to stay, I think. As for your conjectures about societal changes, at least American society has dramatically changed. I think there's a few certain things, like Zoom calls. Our kids, my kids, are so comfortable with Zoom calls now that they are probably willing to do almost anything online. And that's a remarkable shift from what we were doing before. Uh, Working from home is going to be... The standard, I think, I mean, especially in an IT economy, the way our country is moving, so many people can work from home. Uh, I already do work from home. (laughs) And so uh, it's going to definitely have a major transition on society as less people are going to be traveling to downtowns and office buildings to work. Uh, It's going to have a lot of effects. I hope cleanliness, in a way, or mask wearing becomes more common. You see, we've not seen almost any flu in the last year, and that's because everybody's wearing masks. If everybody wore masks like this all the time, we'd almost never see flu. I mean, flu kills tens of thousands of people a year. We could save a lot of lives if we were more careful about transmission and stuff. And so I hope people continue the washing the hands, which 
you know, may or may not help with COVID, but it helped with everything else and may start using masks if they're sick. And those kind of things could really save lives. You know, <laughs> one funny thing is, I think uh, a lot more people own pets now, I think. I mean, I know my dog kept me sane yeah, the last year, you know, uh, he was a godsend. And so many more, uh, everywhere I go now, people have new pets. So I think that's another new thing. A lot more people owning dogs and cats. And so it's fun to see all the new little new rascals running around. So, Yeah, a couple of the things I had written about were uh, that I think telehealth is here to stay it's it's something it's something that i had been let's say touting for a number of years i've used it myself i've written a lot about it and i i wrote fairly early on sometime around june i think i wrote that i had seen more innovation in the delivery of healthcare services in a couple of months than i had seen in the rest of my career that things changed rapidly uh, the other thing that i speculated then and i think it's going to be an interesting thing to see whether it happens as someone who spent eight years in New York City, I was one of the things I was most thankful about was that I was not living in New York City. <laughs> and, I, yes. and I don't just mean because of the early arrival of the virus, but simply I can't imagine what life would have been like there trapped in an apartment. I can, you know, here in, in the suburbs, I can go and sit out in my yard under a tree and, and be happy. If um, to be living in a high rise with elevators and to be dependent upon public transit. I'm just very thankful I wasn't. And I suspect that the idea of living in high-density cities will, at least for some segment of the population, become a lot less attractive an option. And I also wonder whether the use of large-scale mass transit is going to be less attractive uh, going forward. I think definitely there's going to be trends. It's so hard to predict. I mean, New York is so appealing uh, for so many people for so many reasons. So I think New York will come back. I mean, San Francisco, I think, will come back, but they won't be the same, I think. I think that's the thing. They're going to they're going to transition or adapt to a new reality. And I wonder if people like, you know, middle age or older are going to be like, I this isn't worth it any, anymore for me. Or people with young kids just say, forget it, you know. And I mean, all over the country we're seeing, I know it's true in Columbus where I live, um, my sister lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I know it's true there. There's tons of people moving from California and New York to these places. I mean, house sales are going nuts here, which they never do. I mean, we're just not, that's just not how things are here. And, you know, and so clearly something is happening. I think it's going to take a long time to figure out exactly what is happening and, you know, who it's happening to. But this is a societal shift I don't think we've seen since World War II, probably. I mean, it's that dramatic where the effects are so deep that it's going to be hard to really see it for many, many years. Well, and that does my questions. Any final words you want to say? Um... No, not really. I, I, I really enjoyed this. Anytime uh, you want to talk, I'm always here. I do recommend Twitter as long as you can stay away from the haters. So, yeah, always like to see more people on Twitter. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a good way to uh, to end the session. I wanted to thank you, Pradeep. Uh, this has been everything I'd hoped it would be. And uh, and I, I want to talk to you soon about um, sort of accumulating some of your data in writing. I think you've just uh, – I think it needs to be preserved in places other than Twitter too. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed it. 
Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.